trust me. It's a phrase we've all heard someone say to us before, right? And when someone says to you, trust me, they usually want you to step out of your comfort zone and do something you might otherwise not, but to take this risk based on their reliability, on the faith that you have in them. It's as if they're saying to you, hey, if you believe in me and you do this, it's all going to turn out well. You'll be so glad that you did it in the end. Trust me. Maybe the thing that they're trying to get you to do is something new that you've never done before, like go to an exotic restaurant. It's interesting that Elazar was up here leading us in prayer. The couple of times that I've gone for lunch with Elazar, he said, hey, have you ever eaten this kind of food before? Trust me, right? And maybe that's stepping out of our comfort zone because we usually like to go to the familiar pizza or burger joint rather than the new, you know, Indian restaurant. Some of us, Margot, come on. I, don't worry, Margot. We'll go. We'll go for curry. I love it. Or perhaps the trust that they're asking you involves more than just risking your taste buds. Maybe you've been asked to trust them in doing something you're not quite sure is right or even safe. It's like I remember the time when Andrea and I first started dating. And we went for this little hike just on the other side of Burnaby Mountain there. And as we're hiking, we, on our path, uh, you could see this beautiful beach separated by some train tracks. And I said to her, hey, let's go walk over there. Even though there was this ominous sign that said private property of CN Rail. I said, don't worry about it. I do this all the time. Let's go over there. Trust me. And she did trust me. Unfortunately, things didn't turn out as well as I promised her. About an hour later, a police officer was there taking down our names for trespassing. Now, fortunately, we didn't get a ticket, and even more fortunately for me, Andrea didn't dump me on the spot. But this illustrates that when someone asks us to trust them, it can actually be a pretty big deal. Our trusting can potentially have an impact on how well things turn out for us. In the end, we may be glad we did trust them, or we may deeply live to regret it. And we see something similar taking place in the pages of Genesis chapters 2 and 3, where humanity is offered a couple of these trust-me invitations, both of which promise a great reward in exchange for that trust, but as we will see, the good life that we all want, it rests in trusting in God. The good life we want rests in trusting God. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. We're not going to be reading all the verses today. We've read some of them last week, and we'll be reading more of them this week. But today we're looking at verses 8 and 9 and 15 to 17 of chapter 2 and verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3. I'm going to ask us this morning to stand as we read the Word of God. If you're able to. Now the Lord God had planted 
a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man that he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not even touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, last week when Pastor Reese was uh, taking us through parts of Genesis chapter 2, he spoke about how God designed us to flourish, and in order to flourish, we have to be in a fourfold right relationship. This means that we need to be in a right relationship with the rest of creation, with ourselves, with others, and especially with God. But you may have noticed that I had had Reese skip over something in Genesis 2 that is kind of a big deal. These two trees. Because this is where I want to spend a lot of our time focusing today. These two trees are the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in verses 15 and 17 of chapter 2, God tells Adam that he is free to eat from any tree in the garden... But he commands him not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, saying that if he did, he would certainly die. Whoa, that has got to be some potent fruit. Perhaps it's a nut tree and Adam's got some severe allergies. I think not. But if you've been paying attention to what we've been saying about this text so far in this series, then you may conclude that these trees... These trees may not even actually be trees at all, but rather symbols or metaphors for something bigger, even more significant. You may recall how I said that these opening chapters of Genesis are a story, and though it's a story, it is full of truth. It's not necessarily a historical account the way that you and I often think about history. You see, We think of history as just the facts, even though most of the historical writings that we even read today are not just the facts. Rather, they're often embellished, biased, and only represent one side's account of how things went. What is the saying? History is written by the victors. 
But Genesis, you see, is a different kind of historical account. It is artistic and figurative rather than scientific and literalistic. Theologian Bruce Waltke, he says that along with the historical dimension of this text, they have a supra-historical dimension. A supra-historical dimension meaning they have a significant outside of the historical process. Waltke goes on to say, the supra-historical dimension is essential for the theology of this count. Adam and Eve represent every man and every woman. They represent our own rebellion, fallenness, and need for God's grateful, graceful redemption. This is as important as the historical dimension, and both the historical and the super-historical should be held in proper tension. In Genesis 1, we read about how God was singing his creation into being, and that account was full of symbols and meaning that would have spoken to the heart of its ancient Israelite audience. And we find similar features here in Genesis 2 and 3, where figures like trees and fruit and a serpent, they are all potent symbols pointing beyond themselves to something greater and even more important. You see, the truths found in these stories are more significant than just mere historical facts that, can, that those can give us. They point us to a reality beyond this world. They point us to a God who loves us and who desires for us all to flourish and thrive and to experience the good life that we all long for that hinges on trusting him. And this takes us back to these two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life, it seems, well, pretty self-explanatory. You eat from this tree and you live. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one which God commands the man not to eat from, I feel like it needs some explaining. I'm grateful to Daryl Johnson and theologian Daniel Fuller for their insights on what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about, but also what it's not about. First of all, this is one tree. It's not two trees. It's not that it's a good tree and an evil tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this tree is not bad. It's a good tree, right? Everything that God made, we read a couple of weeks ago in Genesis chapter 1, everything he made, he made good. And so this tree itself, it is a good tree. It's just not good for us humans, right? In the same way that a little bunny rabbit can chomp all day long on the belladonna plant, also known as deadly nightshade, and it would be fatal for us humans, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is good for those whom it was designed for, but fatal for humans because it was not designed for us. And by the way, Adam, or humanity, we don't need it either. Everything we humans needed and more, God provided for us in the garden. Our ancestors were free to eat from any tree in the garden, including the tree of life. The only prohibition was the one thing that was not designed for us. The one thing that would destroy our lives in the paradise that God created. Just 
don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We must also be careful never to refer to this tree as just the tree of knowledge, like giving it some sort of shorthand. By doing so, some people have incorrectly assumed that God doesn't want us to know certain things because they are too lofty for us or that that knowledge is dangerous or that somehow the pursuit of knowledge will somehow lead us to abdicating our faith. But this couldn't be further from the truth. As Daryl Johnson writes, it is a false spirituality that asks us to stop thinking in order to believe. It's a false spirituality that asks us to stop thinking in order to believe. You see, God created humans with big, beautiful brains, right? And he gave us these brains so that we could be curious, so that we would seek knowledge, so that we would think deeply, so that we would pursue the the deep truths found in biology and sociology and psychology and all the other ologies, including theology, which is the study of God. There is nothing that humans will ever discover that will ever threaten God or have him thinking, oh no, I can't believe they figured that one out. But there is a kind of knowledge that isn't good for us. In fact, an intimate grasp of this knowledge is fatal for you and I. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil refers to this particular kind of knowledge. So what is it? It's certainly not transmitted by an apple or a piece of fruit that's often depicted in picture Bibles. The phrase knowledge of good and evil is an idiom or it's an expression that's used elsewhere in scripture that helps us to see or grasp what this narrator is getting at. So where else is it used and how is it used? In Deuteronomy 139 and Isaiah 715, both those places This idiom, the knowledge of good and evil, is used to tell us that children do not have this kind of knowledge. So children don't have it. In 2 Samuel 19.35, it is used in order to tell us that elderly people have lost this knowledge. So children don't yet have it, and elderly people begin to lose it. But both children and elderly people possess a great deal of knowledge, especially about what's right and wrong and good and bad. But what do the two of them have in common that children have yet to receive and elderly people lose in time and that those of us in between feel we have a great deal of? Fuller says, It would appear that to the original readers of Genesis 2 that this expression... The knowledge of good and evil signified the possession of maturity which frees one from being dependent on someone else for guidance on how to act wisely. It is the possession of maturity which frees one from being dependent on someone else for guidance on how to act wisely. See, this is what little children do not have yet and what we lose as we age, the capacity to live independently without anybody else's help with making our way through life. Now you might think, but isn't independence a good thing? Isn't that what our parents wanted for us? Isn't this what we teach our children to become, to be mature and self-sufficient, not having to rely on others, able to make our own decisions about what's right and wrong and good and bad? 
The problem, Genesis tells us, is that this kind of knowledge, deciphering for ourselves what's right and wrong, doesn't actually mean we know what is good and what is not. It just means we don't look to anyone else other than ourselves for guidance on how to live. Not even God. Perhaps especially not God. When Yahweh commands the first humans not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he is telling them not to live independent of him. He's saying, don't take matters of life into your own hands. God wants them to continue to consult him on how to live. He wants them to ask him for his help, for guidance in their present circumstances as, as well as in their future welfare. God planned for them to live the good life and by telling them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he's saying that they can only attain that good life by continuing to rely on him. God is asking them to trust him. Perhaps we're wondering, well then why did God even bother to put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden in the first place? Like why even give them an option of choosing between trusting him and living independently? I think this goes back to the first couple of sermons in this series where we talked about how God had made humans in his image and he also made us for relationship. As image bearers, one of the things that sets us apart from the rest of creation is our ability to discern and choose for ourselves. And when it comes to relationships, choosing or choice and voluntary consent are indispensable. When it comes to relationships, choice and voluntary consent is indispensable. This goes for all of our relationships, even our relationship with God. The brilliant Old Testament theologian Sandra Richter, she says, the ones made in the image of God could not be forced or coerced, but instead were called upon to choose their sovereign. Daryl Johnson says that this shows God's respect for human beings. He treats us as free, rational creatures. But think about what a huge risk that God is taking by putting this tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden, right? He is allowing humanity the ability to choose to follow him or reject him. He risks not only the destruction of all of his creation, which we will go into further next week, but he also puts himself in such a vulnerable position by risking being rejected by humanity, being rejected by the children he made and loves. It reminds me of when we were pregnant with my firstborn, Oliver, and I was working at the first church I worked at. I went to our staff meeting and I was telling my lead pastor and our office administrator about the excitement of parenting. And then they started to reflect on their parenting journey. Both of them 
were older, and so each of their kids had grown up. They were all young adults. And as they were talking about parenting, they were reflecting upon all the pain and hurt and disappointment that they had experienced as parents as their children had decided to do things their own way. And I was shocked. I had never heard parents talk like this before. And I said, guys, you're scaring me. You're making me sound like parenting is such an awful risk. And they looked at each other, and they didn't correct me. Because parenting is a huge risk. In fact, all good relationships are risk because they, invo- they involve choice and consent. But that's what love does. Love risks. And it gives trust. And it takes trust which is risky business, friends. In Genesis 3, then, we are now introduced to a new character, the serpent. Here is potentially another clue for us that there is more going on to the story than strictly telling historical facts. You see, this serpent isn't your common garden snake. This creature can talk, and he is a slick talker at that. And anytime you're in your garden and you come upon a snake and he starts talking to you, friends, you run the other way. See, later on in scripture, we learn more about this serpent's identity. He is known as the devil or Satan. And just like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this creature known as Satan was not created evil. Again, God created everything and he created all of it good. But the Bible says that at some point, this creature decided to make a choice and that resulted in him becoming evil And the term devil means deceiver, and the name Satan means adversary. And that is exactly who this snake is. This serpent deceives the humans in this story, and this continues to be his main objective today, deceiving us. And despite coming off like an ally or friend or even a a sweet-talking philosopher or theologian, He is Adam and Eve's adversary and God and humanity's greatest enemy. Notice how the serpent deceives the woman by playing with words. In verse 1, he slyly asks, Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Hmm. What's the answer? No, of course he didn't say that. If God said, don't eat from any tree in the garden, Adam and Eve would have starved to death, right? But the serpent's tactics are never obvious, right? He's always playing with the truth, always trying to get us to question God, right? What did God really say? What does the Bible really say? Now, we might think Eve shuts him down straight away with her answer when she says in verses 2 and 3, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. But actually, that's not what God said. See, the change is subtle, but Eve misquotes God. She leaves out the whole part about them eating freely from any tree in the garden, including the tree of life. That tree was also in the middle of the garden. 
And yet the serpent has her questioning God's generosity rather than thinking about all the blessing that she has. Now the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the only tree that is in the middle of the garden because it's forefront and center in her mind, right? Her answer reveals the fact that she has now become suspicious of God. She is starting to doubt whether God really has her best in mind. And the serpent sees this and he strikes again. You will not certainly die, he said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see how Satan tempts us to make false assumptions about God's nature and his character? He twists God's command, which was intended to protect us from something that would cause you and I great harm. But he suggests instead that the real reason behind God's command is that God fears that we would become like him. You know, God's afraid that we would become his rival, his equal. Satan raises Eve's suspicion that God isn't really that good, that he is actually holding out on her, that ultimately God is stingy. What Satan tempts Eve with is not forbidden fruit. He tempts her to turn from trusting in God, to turn from depending on him for deciding between right and wrong, what will benefit our lives or the lives of those around us and what's harmful. The snake wants to isolate us from the creator, to reach out and to take the forbidden fruit, to take our lives into our own hands. Go ahead, he whispers. Take it. You won't regret it. Trust me. And Adam and Eve, they not only bought the line, hook, line, and sinker, but they bit the fruit, becoming independent from God, Now we are our own judges of morality. We are lords of our lives. And really, this is what is at the heart of every sin that any of us ever commit. It's living independent of God, choosing our ways and our wills be done rather than his. Most of the time when you and I commit a sin— It's not that we're tempted to do something, you know, something hugely sinful in the eyes of other people. Most of us, you know, we might burn with a little road rage, but we're not going to go out and kill someone. But actually, most often, the thing that we're tempted to do is we're tempted to doubt the goodness of God. And that rather than trusting him and acting out of obedience to our loving father, we choose to take charge of our own well-being to become captains of our destinies. You see, sin isn't just disobedience and rebellion. It's also not believing God is as good as he says he is. It's not trusting him. And though Satan always plays a part in deceiving us, lying to us, twisting the truth, it was Adam and Eve who chose to distrust and doubt God wanted their best. Not the serpent. And the same goes for you and I. Do you know, uh, when Adam and Eve began to trust God, do you know who they began to put their trust in instead? 
Yeah, themselves. It wasn't the serpent. They put trust in themselves. And you and I do the very same thing. Every time that I sinned, the Bible says I had a choice. Even when I felt like I didn't. In Romans 6, 12, it says, do not let sin control the way you live. If it's saying I don't have to let sin control the way I live, that means I have a choice, right? Do not give in to sinful desires. This means I have a choice whether I give in to them or not. I have a choice in the way that I live. I can trust God or I can trust Dave. And too often I go with Dave. I go with myself. I trust myself, the creature, rather than trusting the creator. Where do you and I get off thinking that we know better than the creator of the universe? But that's just the thing. Each of us is reaching out and trying to grab hold of for ourselves, to be in control, right? Masters of our lives. But God is saying to us, don't do it. Don't do it. You weren't designed that way. You weren't designed to live independently. It doesn't lead to the good life that I have for you. It only leads to pain and brokenness. Don't do it. It'll only lead to death. Instead, God is asking us to trust him. The abundant life that all of humanity and creation long for depends on trusting God. See, immediately after the humans take the fruit and take their lives into their own hands, we see the immediate breakdown of those four relationships that are essential to be able to have the harmony and the life that God wants for us if we're going to flourish. And then Adam and Eve, they go into hiding from themselves, from each other, and even from God. And this is always the thing that sin causes you and I to do, right? To hide. Do you see the irony in all of this? The serpent says to us, go ahead, reach out, take it, take your independence but it's this bait and switch, right? We don't really get independence. What we get is isolation. Our sin makes us outcasts from God and others. It leaves us feeling alone and isolated. We fear being exposed for who we really are, right? We're sure that if others, if others knew the real me, right? If they knew what goes on in here or in here, if they knew what I did when no one was looking, well then, for sure I would be cast out. I would be rejected for good. And so we hide. Usually it's under the facade that we're doing pretty good on our own, but never really connecting with others or with God because, whew, that's vulnerable. And that's scary. Fortunately for us, God doesn't give up and he doesn't let us get our own way or go our own way. He still wants us to be in a relationship with him and his plans to give us that good life that he intended to live with him together in his kingdom is still the plan going forward. But to receive God's forgiveness and to have our relationship restored, to enter into the good life that God has planned for us, we cannot continue to hide, nor can we live independent of him. But what this means is we have to do something that for most of us is really, really hard. It means we need to confess. It means we need to confess to God I didn't trust you. 
I didn't trust you. I trusted myself. We trusted ourselves. We trusted in our own ability, in our human ingenuity, right? We believed what we thought to be the best or what others told us was the most loving thing or was the best way to be the best humans, right? And we doubted you, God. We doubted your plans for our lives. We doubted what your word says is the best way to live because, well, we bought the lie. We took it. We took the fruit for ourselves. We thought we could do it on our own. So we need to confess. And we need to repent. Repent simply means to stop doing the thing that's wrong. Stop going your own way. Turn around and follow him. Stop trusting ourselves as the arbiters of truth. Rather, turn and follow God through his son, Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus and in his ways. You know, the word repentance has got such a bad rap from bad preachers in the past, but what the word repent means is opportunity, friends. It means we get another chance, a do-over. God's going to let us do it again. It's grace. God's good grace. He receives our confession. He gives us repentance. And he restores us. 1 John 1, 8, 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, ah, oh, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And you remember righteousness is about being in right relationship. He purifies us from all unrighteousness, meaning he will restore and heal all of our broken relationships. You know, many years after this snake deceived the first humans in the garden, the snake would try to attempt to deceive another human, another Adam. But this time, he would attempt to do it in a desert. While Jesus was in the desert, Satan came and tempted Jesus in the very same way that he duped Adam and Eve, right? He was trying to get Jesus to take control of his own destiny, tempting him to subvert the ways and the will of God the Father and to live independently. It must have been very tempting for Jesus. You know, just bow down and you could avoid that painful, awful crucifixion. Just worship the servant, serpent and you can escape death. This seems like a much nicer and easier path to ruling the world, which was what Satan was offering him. Fortunately, Jesus understood who he was talking to, right? In John 8, 44, Jesus says that Satan is the father or is a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Instead, what Jesus did is he continued to trust in the father. And his entire earthly life is a display of what a life living in complete dependence on God looks like. Jesus says in John 5, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. By myself, I can do nothing. 
I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but to please the one who sent me. And then, during his earthly ministry, this is exactly how Jesus called his followers to live. This is exactly how he calls you and I to live today. Not taking it upon ourselves to live the good life. Not trying to be world changers all on our own. But to step away from the independent life. Right? The independent life that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And instead, Jesus is calling us to find our nourishment in a different tree. Him. He says in John 15, Remain in me, and I also will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And we are his, his disciples. We show it when we remain in him, when we rely and depend on him. It's so ironic, though, isn't it, how hard our society works to promote independence. How many of us have either made our parents proud or disappointed them based on how independent we have become? How tempting it is for me as a father, right, to raise my kids with the goal of having them to become independent, right? To have them stand on their own two feet, And in some small ways, yes, absolutely. I want my boys to be self-sufficient, but not nearly as self-sufficient or independent as our human desires desire us to be. You see, Jesus calls us away from that. He wants us to reject independence, to flee from it. Jesus is radically anti-independent. He wants us to become more and more dependent upon him, to abide in him, to rely on him. In Matthew 18, 3 and 4, he says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like a little child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That is so countercultural. Jesus is saying that if we want to be a part of his kingdom, if we want to experience the good life that God has planned for us, then you have to be like that small child. And do you remember what I said earlier, what little children do not have? They don't have the knowledge of good and evil. They don't have their independence. Children must rely and trust others to guide them, to help them make good decisions and wise choices. Just like the elderly 
begin to need others to keep them safe and provide them with the good life because they can't obtain it on their own. And this is exactly what each of us needs to. We need to reorient ourselves, friends, from independence to being utterly dependent. Before we go, I want to quickly talk about that other tree, the tree of life. The tree of life doesn't get a lot of attention in this story, nor does it seem to get a lot of airtime in the rest of the Bible. There's a few places in Psalms and Proverbs where it's spoken about. However, it finds a most prominent place at the very end of the story. Isn't that interesting how there's these trees that play a role at the beginning and then at the very end? I think it was kind of planned out that way. In the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, Jesus is speaking to a church, and a church is simply just a group of his followers who gather together. And he's reminding them to trust him, to depend on him, rather than than in their own ways or in the ways of the world around them, which they were being pressured to capitulate, to give in, to just to go along with the flow. But he says to them, listen, If you do this, if you cling to me for guidance, if you rely on me for how you should live, then you will get that good life that you long for. Invite the worship team to come on up. And if you could stand with me. I want to read the words that Jesus says to that church in Revelation chapter 2 verse 7. For he not only speaks it to the churches in Asia Minor, but he speaks it to his church today. Our Lord said, To the one who is victorious, to the one who abides in me and depends on me and lives in reliance on God and trusts in him, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Thank you, Jesus. Help us to do that. We pray these things in your great name. Amen.